From KBOO in Portland, Oregon, and the Pacifica Radio Network, this is Progressive Spirit, progressivespirit.net. I'm John Schuck. My guest today is Larry Hurtado, scholar of early Christian history. His latest book is Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. Cities each had their guardian gods, and again, you participated in reverencing the guardian god of the city as a way of demonstrating your civic loyalty, your civic solidarity. So to refrain from that, to refuse to reverence family gods or the city gods, for example, was viewed by people as being not simply a religious choice, so to speak, in our terms, but as being um, uh, family or civic disloyalty, kind of an apostasy against your family or your nation. Larry Hurtado is Professor Emeritus of New Testament Language, Literature, and Theology in the School of Divinity at the University of Edinburgh in the UK. We're going to discuss why early Christianity was so odd and why it has come to define what we mean by religion today. From Edinburgh via Skype, welcome Dr. Hurtado to Progressive Spirit. Thank you very much for having me, enjoying the time. In the preface of your book, uh, you write that the features that made earliest Christianity distinctive, even odd, in the first three centuries of the Roman Empire have shaped how we understand religion today. Uh, What was odd then is normative now. Uh, Do you mind giving us uh, your thesis in a a nutshell? Yes, it is well that uh, in in the Roman setting, both uh, judged by the way in which Christianity is referred to by outsiders— and looking at simply the substance of what early Christians believed and, and how they lived in comparison to the larger um, cultural, religious environment of the time, Christianity was uh, distinctive in a number of ways. Of course, it was a Roman-era religion, and of course, there were a lot of things that it shared with its environment, but there were also really quite distinctive, uh, strong distinctive features, which I focus on in the book. And these features, the odd thing is that the features I choose to discuss have subsequently become commonplace uh, things for us. Let me give you one brief example, which I cite in the book. If you were to go out into the street with a microphone and ask people, do you believe in God? You would probably get one of three responses, either yes or no, or I'm not sure. Nobody probably would ask you, excuse me, which of the gods are we talking about at this moment? As I say, in the West, uh, even atheists presume that there's only one God to doubt. Uh, in the long history of human, uh, human civilization, and to this day in the world, the notion that there is only one God is a rather bizarre notion. We take it for granted. But in the Roman world and throughout most human history, people have thought that a totally stupid point of view. Uh, The reason, therefore, that we presume that there's one God is largely down, I think, to the influence of of Christianity. How would uh, the monotheism of Christianity be different than the monotheism of Judaism? Not essentially. In both cases, what we we use the term monotheism in a way in which it doesn't fit, really. I mean, the dictionary definition of monotheism is the belief that there is only one God. Jews and Christians in the ancient world weren't monotheists in that sense of the word, we use the word monotheism to mean more uh, that they practiced what I would call a cultic or uh, worship exclusivity. That is, their point was not to deny that there weren't other divine beings of some sort, but that it was inappropriate to worship any other being other than the one God of the biblical tradition. And yes, both Jews and what became Christianity agreed in that, 
And so at the level of ideas, you might say, there isn't that much difference. And certainly at the level of practice, they both refrained or refused to engage in the worship of the many gods of the, of the larger Roman environment. As far as um, the pagans of their time were concerned, the Jewish exclusivity with regard to only one god was an ethnic feature. It was, it was how Jews as an ethnos behaved. They identified it as a feature of Jewish ethnicity. It was funny to them. It was objectionable, maybe bizarre, antisocial. But hey, it's the way the Jewish people are, and it's a feature of their ethnicity. And Romans were uh, impressively prepared to accept the uh, idiosyncrasies of the various ethnic groups that made up the empire. In the case of what became early Christianity, however, you have a religious standpoint of exclusivity that is not justified or uh, connected with any particular ethnic group. Early Christianity is trans-ethnic in its uh, sweep and in its makeup. And so there, there was no connect, there was no uh, historic basis for this. Plus, early Christianity was much more aggressive in it's um, in, in pushing its exclusivity, in attempting to make converts, in attempting to persuade people. Jews, by and large, it appears, weren't particularly um, committed or heavily engaged in trying to convert pagans to their point of view. They simply maintained their stance. Early Christianity was an aggressively evangelistic religious movement and took it to the streets, so to speak, in a much more aggressive and in-your-face kind of way. You're listening to Progressive Spirit. I'm John Schuck. Larry Hurtado is my guest. He's the author of Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. Let's talk more about some of the ways Christianity was uh, odd in its early development. Uh, Non-Christians, intellectuals, Pliny, Celsus, uh, didn't seem to like it, uh, thought it was bad for society. What were some of the early complaints uh, about Christianity? Well, uh, there were wild rumors, of course, that circulated that early Christians engaged in orgiastic sex, that they were cannibals and so on. Um, this is the, these are the sorts of um, calumnies or accusations that were hurled at various groups. And so they, they aren't really echoed in any of the learned or informed critics of the time. People such as Pliny or Tacitus or Suetonius or uh, Celsus in his full-scale critique are much more intelligent and informed. And the reasons that they regard early Christianity as uh, bizarre, objectionable, even dangerous, is once again primarily, not exclusively, but heavily to do with their, their exclusive, their religious exclusivity. In the, we have to understand that in the Roman world, what we call religion and what we call society were not two separate things. For us, they are. We think of, you know, religion is something you choose to do on an individual basis and it has nothing to do with your political loyalty or your social identity, whatever. In the Roman world, that was not the case. Um, religion was indissolubly connected with every other aspect of life. So Roman homes had their family uh, images, a little shrine at which the family gathered on a regular basis and demonstrated its uh, devotion to the family deities and their solidarity with each other by doing that. Cities each had their guardian gods and again, you participated in reverencing the guardian god of the city as a way of demonstrating your civic loyalty, your civic solidarity. So to refrain from that, to refuse to reverence the family gods or the city gods, for example, was viewed by people as being not simply a religious choice, so to speak, in our terms, but as being um, uh, family or civic disloyalty 
kind of a, an apostasy against your family or your nation. So one of the terms hurled at early Christians is that they were haters of mankind, antisocial. Uh, in the, in and antisocial not by by going out and you know and, and beating up people in the street or by causing disturbances or anything, but simply by refusing to reverence the gods by which families and societies uh, identified themselves. So that's one important way in which early Christianity was seen to be deeply objectionable and even threatening to the very foundations of of uh, family and social and political life. It almost seems to use a phrase today that it would be uh, they were unpatriotic. Absolutely, yes. In a country such as the United States or in modern Western countries such as Britain, your pledge of loyalty is not connected with your religion. So, for example, right now, the, the new mayor of London is a Muslim, although the official religion in England is the Church of England, is Christianity. But there, there's no problem. Nobody doubts political loyalty. In the Roman world, particularly to refuse to reverence the gods that signified the city or that signified the family, to refuse to reverence them was seen to sort of undercut the family, the society. The city gods were taken quite seriously. They guarded the city, kept it from fire, from plague, from other disaster, earthquake, whatever. The way you uh, maintain the protection of these deities was to show them proper reverence. And if individuals withdrew from that, then theoretically, you could be putting the whole city at danger in the eyes of other people. It would be like failing to observe a kind of, uh, you know, health requirements that we, you sort of had um, uh, some sort of communicable disease, but you refuse to quarantine yourself or whatever. We would say, oh, no, that's, that's very wrong. That's putting everybody else at risk. And the early Christians' refusal to worship the city gods, for example, was seen by some people as an equivalent kind of uh, attack or, or endangering of the welfare of the city. Now, I've heard uh, often uh, that some of the hostility toward Christians uh, is because they were not involved in the Roman military, that Christianity had a pacifist or anti-imperial streak in it. Is there evidence for that? Uh, what have you found? It's hard to find any explicit reference to uh, Christians and the military um, in the first, at least the first couple of centuries or so, I can't think of anything that directly impinges upon that. For example, in the New Testament, which comprises uh, the bulk of our, of our earliest, sort of largely first century, early second century writings, I can't find anything directly referring to that one way or the other. Uh, clearly, Christians are uh, exhorted not to engage in violence, not to engage in, um, in vengeance against enemies and so on and so on, to love their enemies. Whether that translated out into feeling that they could not or should not participate in Roman military is another question. Part of the problem in the military and serving in the military would not simply be that they'd have to take up a sword, but also all of the military legions had their own gods. And members of the troop of the various legions were expected to gather and reverence the tutelary deities of that particular legion. Christians were not supposed to do that. So once again, it, it was a real question of could Christians participate in the military, even in peacetime, simply because uh, they could not reverence the gods that signified the solidarity of that, of that Roman military unit. It's also difficult, I think, although a lot of people now, some scholars nowadays emphasize very much the kind of um, politically subversive uh, nature of Christianity and anti-imperial uh, tones and so on. 
there are some texts. Obviously, the book of Revelation is the clearest one that seems to be rather uh, stridently uh, critical and anti-imperial. But otherwise, it, it, isn't, it doesn't seem to me to be a consistent emphasis that runs through. Indeed, you have other texts in the New Testament and beyond into the second and third century which emphatically say, no, no, we will support the emperor. We will pray for the emperor. We will pray for his welfare and for the peace of the empire. We are not disloyal citizens. Uh, we will be the best citizens, so to speak, that you could ask for because we will be honest, we'll be law-abiding and so on if you don't criminalize our faith. But we cannot worship your gods. We cannot uh, treat the emperor as a god and we cannot treat the gods of Rome as worthy of worship. But we will be... Uh, we will be loyal citizens and good members of society. If you're just joining us, I'm speaking with Larry Hurtado. He's the author of Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. And you're listening to Progressive Spirit. I'm thinking of uh, a verse from Paul, Galatians 3, uh, what is it, 328, when Paul writes that there's neither Jew nor Greek, male or female, slave or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. Was that an odd statement uh, for its time? In a modern society such as the United States or Britain, there would be periodic censuses taken of the population. And on the census, one of the questions you'll likely be asked is, what is your ethnic background? You know, so in, in Britain, you might say uh, white British or black Caribbean or, or South Asian or whatever. And then there'll be another question typically that will say, uh, what's your religious affiliation? And you can indicate, um, you know, uh, Protestant or Zen Buddhist. We think of it in quite natural uh, and reasonable that there should be two separate questions, one to do with your ethnicity, one to do with your religious alignment. In the Roman world, your religious identity and your religious obligations were basically given to you with your birth certificate. Your ethnicity and your religious orientation or identity were indissolubly connected. This is true even of Judaism. If you, as I say, Jewish, Jewishness, Jewish religiousness was seen in the Roman world as simply a feature of Jewish ethnicity. And so if you became a full convert to Judaism, you became a proselyte, which means, as the ancients say, you forsook your family, you forsook your, your nation, and you joined yourself to the Jewish race and the Jewish nation. You changed ethnicity in order to make a full change in your God. What becomes early Christianity, as I say, is multi-ethnic or trans-ethnic in its makeup. And it basically says, no, you stay what you are. You're Egyptian, you're Syrian, you're Roman, you're Greek, whatever you are. You, you maintain that ethnic identity. You remain a member of your family and of your society and of your people. But you forsake all of your, you lay aside all of your uh, gods and religious um, worship that is associated with your family, your people, whatever, and your... Your sole God is to be this God that is proclaimed to you in the gospel. Effectively, what happens there, you see, is that a powerful distinction or separation is made between what we would call ethnicity and religious identity. Indeed, I suggest that early Christianity, in taking that sort of stance, effectively invents what we would call a separate religious identity. Well, let's talk about that in regard to the phrase that you use in other works, devotion to Jesus. What do you mean by that phrase, and how was that distinctive in the early Christian movement? Well, the term devotion to Jesus or Jesus' devotion is a kind of umbrella term that I, I drew upon from, from some about 30 years ago, trying to find a, a catch-all term that would cover all of the various phenomena by which 
um, we can recognize the place of Jesus, of the of Jesus in the beliefs and religious practices of early Christianity. So the, the the term devotion covers all of that. What early Christians believed about Jesus and how Jesus featured in their in the practice of their religion, their ritual behavior, their uh, daily ethical behavior, and so on. The unusual feature uh, here is that early Christianity claimed to worship only one God and rejected the multiple gods and the sort of demigods, divine heroes, and so on of the day. And yet you had this second distinguishable figure. I mean, they, they, in, in the language of the New Testament, early Christianity, they characteristically will refer to God by which they, they refer to what subsequently we often refer to as sort of you know, God the Father, that is God, and then they refer to our Lord Jesus. They often distinguish the two by calling God with the Greek word theos, God, and referring to Jesus with the Greek word kyrios, or Lord. They're distinguished as to their roles. A little text like 1 Corinthians chapter 8, for example, in his letter to the Corinthians, Paul refers to the many gods of the time, many lords of the time, and says, no, but for us, there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and to whom are all things, so there's the one God. And then he goes on without a hiccup, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we are. So there you have two figures, <laughs> curiously this emphasis on only one God and then and also one Lord. So you have two figures, but they are distinguished from each other in their roles. God, in Paul's term, God or God the Father is the one who is the source of all things, the creator of all things, and the destiny, you might say, of all redemption. And Jesus pictured as the unique agent of both creation and of redemption. So they play a differentiated role. They are what I've come to call a kind so there is what I've come to call a kind of dyadic devotional pattern and dyadic belief system involving a dyad of God and Jesus. But it's a shaped dyad in which the roles or relationship of the two is fixed. God, the Father, is the source of all things. Jesus, the unique agent of all things. Was Christianity at all a mix between, say, the monotheism of Judaism and the polytheism of uh, Roman religion? I don't think it. I don't think it captures things well enough because, mm -hmm. in the, uh, I mean, if if all the Christians wanted to do was to say. By the way, we have this new guy, Jesus, which, who we think is really cool, and, and indeed we want to treat him as a god. The Roman world would have said, fine, bring him to the party. Not a problem. You could introduce the new god on any Tuesday morning without any problem or objection from other people. The problem and what sets apart early Christianity from the whole sort of larger religious environment of the time is, again, its exclusivity. And this was how it was perceived by others. They confine themselves to the one God and to this one figure, Jesus. But it's not a case of, of justifying it by him being a demigod or likening him to the various semi-god figures or divinized human figures of the time. They insist, no, no, it's only this one guy. So they, they refuse to fit into a larger category or logic, you might say, of the time and instead present their own particular logic. So in answer to the question, well, how can you call yourself a monotheist, for example, only one God, and yet also reverence this 
Jesus figure in the way that you do, in which you, you seem to be treating him like a god as well. Yeah. And the answer, implicit answer, seems to be in the earliest texts uh, of the New Testament, because God has exalted him, God, in this case the Father, has exalted Jesus and made him Lord, and now it is the will of God that Jesus be reverenced in this way. So, ironically, they're arguing, to refuse to reverence Jesus as Lord, to refuse to treat him uh, as a legitimate recipient of their devotion, is actually to disobey the one God. <laughs> Not to disobey Jesus, so to speak, but to disobey the one God who has ordained now that he be, uh, that he be recognized and reverenced in this way. It's, um, it's not the same logic as the, the so-called polytheistic logic of the time in which theoretically you can have as many gods or as many divinized heroes as, as you want. Early Christianity practices this rather strict exclusivism that derives from their Jewish background. Only one God, and in this case, only one agent of God, Jesus, uh, who is appointed by the one God. The kind of logic of exclusivity cuts through the whole thing and, and in that sense separates it from the the larger, you might say, religious logic of the of the Roman polytheistic system. Larry Hurtado, my guest, author of Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. Not only was early Christianity odd in its setting, but also came to define how we understand religion today. Now, I don't know how you might answer a question like this, but I, but I have it, so I'll throw it out to you. I, I often wonder just why Christianity began. From an historical perspective, was it a movement waiting to happen, and it would have happened whether Jesus had been there or not? Or would it have never happened if there was no Jesus? Well, it's hard to say for sure. We can, you know, we can only sort of uh, guesstimate things on the basis of what, of what evidence that we have. Uh, I don't think that what became Christianity was inevitable. Um, I don't think you could have predicted it. Um, it's certainly the case, though, that the world in which early Christianity first appeared, was a period alive, crawling with new and varied religious developments and movements. So it was, it was not a static kind of period. It was uh, alive and, and active with, uh, with new religious developments. In the Jewish tradition of the time, various um, uh, religious parties and sects were developing. You know, we know about from the New Testament, for example, we know about Pharisees and Sadducees. From the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we know of the Qumran community, which practiced a much more sectarian, much more exclusivist kind of Judaism in which their form of Judaism was, it appears, considered by them the only legitimate form and other forms of Judaism not considered legitimate. In the larger Roman environment, we know that there were not only the traditional pantheons of Greece and Rome, but also new deities appearing or transformed deities taking on new roles such as Isis worship or Mithras amongst the Roman army. So it's a, it's a fairly active, uh, I've used the language sometimes, early Christianity entered a fairly active and crowded highway with uh, lots of religious traffic going on. Uh, it wasn't as though people were sitting around waiting for something interesting to happen. There was stuff going on all the time. And therefore, early Christianity had to sort of compete for space, you might say, with a, a whole variety of other religious options, a whole cafeteria of religious options of the time. The, um, the per peculiarity of early Christianity is, is uh, why it became what it was. Why? Why did it become, you know, it starts off as a, as a kind of Jewish renewal movement, really, 
the initial makeup is, is among Jews in Roman Judea. But then very quickly, within a few years, perhaps at most, maybe even a few months, uh, it begins to spread translocally to other cities in Syria, such as Damascus or Antioch, and, uh, and trans-ethnically to people who are not Jewish, to so-called Gentiles or pagans. Uh, perhaps initially to those pagans who were sort of mildly attracted to Judaism but hadn't, hadn't felt able to make a full proselyte conversion. So it, 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 it then grows and becomes, of course, by the end of the first centuries, probably dominantly made up of non-Jews and is taking on, uh, also growing th vertically through the social stratification of the Roman world. It, it's a curious phenomenon because... It's growing all through this period and developing at a point when also it is suffering this social opprobrium, harassment, uh, suspicion as a, an antisocial movement, as a movement that sort of threatens the traditional structures of family and of society. So how does something that is suffering such opprobrium and such a harassment and, and bad press, you might say, how does it manage to grow? And why, this is the other way of putting the question, why did people become Christian this period? Uh, I, I published a, a, a lecture in this form of a small monograph earlier this year, came out in April, uh, entitled, Why on Earth Did Anyone Become a Christian in the First Three Centuries? And the title of the lecture is uh, the question that I'm trying to put in that sharpened way. So instead of asking, why did early Christianity grow on a collective basis, as many scholars have asked, I'm trying to ask the question, well, why at the individual level would anybody become a Christian given the social and sometimes political costs of becoming one? It's, it's a really interesting question. And I think the only answer we can give, whatever the specifics, obviously, unless people were completely stupid, and I don't think that accounts for everybody who became a Christian, uh, the only other answer we can give is that obviously there must have been features of early Christianity in their beliefs or other features of their social, their social collective life or whatever that seem to converts worth the cost of becoming a Christian. There seemed to be sufficient compensation to make it worth the cost of um, suffering ostracism and perhaps even occasionally prosecution for being a Christian. My guest has been Larry Hurtado. He's the author of Destroyer of the Gods, Early Christian Distinctiveness in the Roman World. Thank you for uh, this fascinating book and for being with me today. Great. Thanks very much. You've been listening to Progressive Spirit. For links to podcasts, go to progressivespirit.net. From the Pacifica Radio Network and KBOO in Portland, Oregon, I'm John Schuck. Be well.